So hello and welcome to My Dollarama's Top Picks. This is episode 11. For new listeners, I'm Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic with my co-host Abla Candeloft, film programmer, hello. <laughs> film programmer, journalist and researcher. In Top Picks, we use post-colonial Afro-pessimism and Bordeauxian theories to discuss race and class in drama, documentary, mystery, and horror films. Now in its 10th year, My Die champions independent film and using the medium as a platform for underrepresented and often ignored voices. We're going to start this episode as usual with our top picks of the week, then discuss two films, both from 2020, both on Netflix. The first is His House, and the second is the documentary, The Social Dilemma. Lovely. Thank you very much. Right, I'm going to start with a bit of a of wild improv, but I've got Facebook open as I'm speaking and um, a post just popped up, which is worth mentioning. A film director who's uh, very good has a documentary that's going to be available online for a whole month. So his name is Said Taji Faruqi and he's got an award-winning documentary called Tell Spring Not To Come This Year. And it's available for free all this month on Sima Studios and we'll put the link in the blurb. The documentary tells the the story of the war in Afghanistan through the eyes of the Afghans who live it. And it's got very good reviews. Um, quick couple of things that we should mention. We now have a newsletter. It's very cool, very colourful. It's got lots of pictures in it. And it includes two promo codes. Well, it was very dry before, so... Uh, the first promo code is for the Emerging Filmmakers Night Festival and they've opened submissions for short films on Film Freeway. The other one is for the film No Extradition, the campaign of support for Julian Assange and we'd interviewed the filmmaker Pablo Navarrete a few weeks ago on the podcast. So his film is now available on Vimeo and you can uh, again input a promo code to get a little bit of money off the uh, ticket price. Two things I just want to quickly talk about that I've watched in the last few weeks. It's Paranormal, which is an Egyptian horror series that's on Netflix. Now, I love horror and I love genre and I'm so, so pleased to see that the Middle East is now producing more horror um, output. So this is really good. It's by filmmaker Hamar Salama. Did very well. The set pieces are wonderful. It's set in 1960, 1970s Egypt. The production values are very high. It's not quite clear what it's about so far. I've only watched two episodes and I, each one contains different types of supernatural beings and, of, and I think there will be a story arc that links all the episodes together. The scary bits are quite scary. There is a little bit. And so Chris had to point this out to me because for me, it was a given because it's an Egyptian TV series. Mm -hmm. So it's got quite melodramatic music. So he was like, why is there like sunset beach type symphony orchestras as soon as anything happens? And I was like, well, that's because it's Egyptian. So you lose a little bit of the tension. But that's fine. I think my biggest bugbear, which really takes you out of the out of the atmosphere, is a really, really ropey Scottish accent by the lead woman in it. It's set in Egypt. He's in it. He's uh, and in the 70s, as I said, and arrives Maggie, a Scottish woman he'd met in Edinburgh years ago. And presumably they've had a sort of fling and they'd fallen for each other. And now he's he's engaged to someone else. 
This Maggie's meant to be Scottish, like 100% Scottish, but she happens to have learned Arabic and speaks a bit of Arabic. She is played by a Lebanese actress, which it's, it's fine, why not? But she cannot do a Scottish accent. It's really distracting. It's like a mishmash of Australian, Texan, Irish. But to be fair, uh, no one seems to have picked up on it. I think the majorly Arab audience of the show doesn't seem to give a shit. Or they probably don't notice because years ago I used to watch this film, Muriel's Wedding. I don't know if you remember that from the 90s. And then later I met these Australians and they were highly critical about how bad the accents were. And I was like, what would I know about an Australian accent? Come on now. Hang on, who's not Australian in it? Isn't Tony Collette Australian? They said the accents were bad, so I don't know. But I, uh, but, but you, or an even better analogy, the play The Color Purple came to London and I went with my American friend to watch it. And we, and again, it's distracting is the word for it. Like we couldn't even focus on the story <laughs> because the accents made the characters unbelievable. And we were just like, what is this? And everyone else there was saying how much in love they were with it. I'm like, but what about the accents? That's not throwing you off. And they had no idea what we were talking about. It's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it was, it was really, it was really horrific. And my friend had seen it with, um, what's the the singer's name fantasia and apparently it was you know like one of those once in a lifetime whitney houston concert like experiences and for i mean she was just so distraught she's just like i can't believe i have to sit through this and we were both too cheap to leave so it's like (laughs) we just stayed and complained and grumbled but yeah i know what you mean that's to say when you do have an accent it's something about it where it, it makes it Maybe it's like that element of film where you have to buy into the world of make-believe on some level. And that just keeps you from wanting to even open the door to that. It's like, look, you you ruined it for me now. Yeah. Two problems with that. that The first one, she's a major character. So you could overlook it if she hadn't been a major character. The second problem, it's meant to be a horror series. So you're meant to to get really sucked in and to imbibe the atmosphere. Uh, What's the phrase? credit given for where credit's due or whatever it is because she plays a scottish woman who speaks arabic her arabic has to have a foreign accent and she does that really well it's just the scottish but that now that's an interesting one isn't it yeah. though that's quite a skill to be able to do that and she's not a bad actress at all so i don't want it to be a reflection on her acting ability it's literally just the fact that she's meant to do the scottish accent which doesn't quite work um, now, maybe they've, I don't know, I'd find it hard to believe that they they just couldn't find an actress that could do both, but maybe they didn't. The, but she's a homewrecker, though, right? In the film. she's there to Well, I his, don't know. I've only seen two episodes, so she marriage. might end up being... Otherwise, why would she be there? Oh, so... You, I hear people do that BS. Well, we're just, we've been through so much, we have to at least be friends. Oh, stop. You know you're trying to ruin... So you think they <laughs> cast her specifically so she's unlikable from the start? <laughs> Well, because she she is ultimately right. I mean, she's you can't mean any good if you're an ex showing up and the person is going to get married. It's like you know the only because I hate romantic comedies. The only one I've ever liked, ever ever, was my best friend's wedding, and only because that was the premise, and they didn't get together at the end because he was just like, no, yeah. like we're friends, but I love even though. It was clear to everyone his marriage wasn't going to work out, but that wasn't the point because that's never the well, point. Well, yeah, I mean, it? you already sympathise with his fiance, who's who comes across as a very kind, loving, <laughs> loving, generous woman. 
Mm. Um, the other thing that's very distracting, so there's the accent and there's, there's the wig. She's got a bright orange Lego man <laughs> wig that just doesn't move. And I'll tell you a very accurate uh, comparison. Do you know the? Do you know Chris Lilly? Do you know who he is? You know, I don't. He's no. an Australian comedian. He's very controversial now. I oh, have why is he controversial? Because, well, he's been. Or maybe I'll Google it while you say. I mean, if you don't want to spend time. There's been accusations that his characters are racist or reductive, or and I can see. I don't know when they call out racism in Australia. It's got to be pretty it's, bad. Have a, just watch his <laughs> stuff. Especially in Summer Heights High, and there's a character called Jamey. He mocks all these people, so he's excellent at um, dressing up and playing different characters. And he plays this private school girl who's called Jamey. That sounds funny. And she's got this weird hair that half falls on her face that she keeps flicking. And the wig just looks like that in that series. <laughs> um, but aside from that, if you can push through, it's very enjoyable and it's just just so nice having an Arab series that's um, horror-based. So that's on Netflix and I'm going to watch the rest in the coming days. The second one I just want to me quickly mention is, you know how I talked about The Vow um, a few weeks ago? Was that the time-traveling one? No. So The Vow was the do HBO documentary about Keith Ranieri and his weird cult called Nexium. Of course, yes. So... So The Vow took about eight to ten weeks to watch. And now there's another documentary about it, which is called Seduced. And Seduced is, I have to say, much juicier than The Vow. Mm. So The Vow was a true crime documentary series revolving around Nexium and its leader, Keith Ranieri. Mm -hmm. So just... Uh, if in case you you know anyone's listening that's not quite familiar with him he's a profession basically a very effective scammer who built his first businesses were mlm schemes and out of that grew nexium which he marketed as an executive success program so it was a sort of methodology that allowed you to I mean, he uses words like optimize your behavior, but basically be more successful, make more money through changes in worldview and cha changes in behavior. Now, what the vow does is it, it does touch on the coercive nature of Ranieri's practices and some elements of brainwashing and gaslighting. Like the worst thing about it was the um, the what he the practice of branding they inflicted on the women members of the cult yes one said it was worse than child you've been looking at it well i i watched only yeah because after you mentioned it i thought oh this sounds really crazy um so it came up because you know i i watch youtube to procrastinate and it yes. draws me and when will i learn but yeah it was some uh you know some youtubers had covered it, it sounded pretty horrific stuff um yeah I, I don't quite but we've talked about cults before, so it yes, made sense in line with what we've spoken about. Because I still don't really understand, you know. I've never read a book on it even, so I, there's just so much I don't understand. It's just like, wow, you... And even the mindset of someone who would hold someone down to do that or coerce yeah. someone into doing something so horrific. And I still don't even know if the people in the inner circle were branded. Because one thing to say, look, I did it, so bite on this piece of leather and suck it up. But I don't think they were branded. I think they just did that to the other women. That's not 
expl- made explicit. Mm. You're mm. right. But this is why seduced is so interesting. So the vow, it was, um, I think, executive produced by Mark Vincenti, who was an, another ex-members. So maybe there was this sense that they want to... I'm not going to say it was a sanitized a, a view of Nexium, mm-hmm. but it was very much their atonement and their uh, narrative of um, how things unfolded. Whereas Seduce is more trashy. It's basically more explosive and more sensationalist. <laughs> and that's when you're like, oh, this is really nuts. So it delves much deeper into the the very the cultish practices of Nexium mm. from the sleep deprivation to as I said like the all night volleyball matches which sound ridiculously funny but actually it was a way of like grinding people down. There's an interesting development in Seduced because in the last few episodes of The Vow, one of the women that speaks is an actress who was who went to the first few workshops and classes and took her daughter with her she's relatively well known because she's also she's an actress but she's also royalty she's descendant from a royal family in in eastern european royal family oh wow um, okay the royalty oh, i'm yeah. saying wow i don't believe in monarchy what am i doing anyway um, it's really by the by in this in the in the documentary though but her daughter called india has joined the cult. So she takes her, say, takes her with her at an early masterclass with Keith Ranieri, uh, the mum, and then she's very quickly put off by all this. But her daughter gets sucked in. You don't really know what the background is to that in The Vow, but what you do see is her trying to get to reach her daughter because her daughter then refuses to speak to her. The seduced, I assume, was shot after the vow, because you see India, she's one of the protagonists, and she talks about her experience of Nexium. And that's really interesting. She spent a hell of a lot of time there. She's joined when she was very young, and she was at the receiving end of the worst of it, of, of the sexual abuse, of the branding, of. So, a lot of Nexium in my life recently. Okay, so. I had a few that um, I did this week. So, yeah, I think I can't remember the last time. Um, I was able to do that. So that's fantastic. I think it's because I was, instead of doing work I was supposed to do last weekend, I watched Netflix. So the first one was the China China Hustle. And this one is similar to the 2016 documentary Betting on Zero. And it, that was about short sellers and their suspicions of fraud in the multi-level marketing company Herbalife. So the China Focus has a similar focus, but this time, instead of Herbalife, it's Chinese companies that are running a similar scam. So it's believed that many of these reverse mergers, and it's because you have to be, to trade on the New York Stock Exchange, you have to be a U.S. company. And so there are these companies that trade on the stock exchange, but are, for all intents and purposes, dormant, even though they exist on paper. And so they've merged with these Chinese companies, and it's called a reverse merger, which allows the Chinese companies to trade on the New York Stock Exchange. The only problem with this for some of them, and this isn't for all of the companies that are doing this, but they are estimating something crazy like 70, 80% of these companies are overvaluing them by as much as a thousand percent to raise money in the initial public offering. So this was pointed out that there's a fraud going on, that these companies aren't as valuable as they're saying, but there doesn't seem to be a 
I guess, an impetus to do anything about it because the traders still make their money from the commissions on the trade. So after that happens and the companies get the cash, which they are not required to give back if they have overvalued anything on their financial statements, the values drop and that leaves stockholders with worthless stock on their hands. Now, the people who are calling attention to this are suspect, not by me, but by the financial industry because they are short sellers. So as you know, for a short seller, it is in their interest to see the stock go to nothing as the documentary betting on zero showed us. That is what he is betting on the stock going to zero so that he can make his billion dollars. So that was really interesting. It's nothing I'd ever heard about. And the documentary is old. So it's from 2017, a year after betting on zero came out. And I encourage people to check that out. Mm-hmm. The other one I saw also old was White Boy Rick, which is a 2018 film. And then to get a better understanding of White Boy Rick, the film, I watched White Boy, the 27 documentary about White Boy Rick. So for those of you who don't know, it's about, and I did not know, it is about Rick Worsey Jr., his case. In short, he became an FBI informant at the age of 14 And he did easy stuff, so nothing undercover, but he would go around identifying drug dealers and drug houses in his Detroit neighborhood because he was born and raised there and very much involved in that sort of criminal life. Now, we should note that his father was a gun dealer and involved in that world as well. So he's like the second generation in that. And in fact, his father is the one who negotiated the paid informant job for him. I was going to ask if it says how he got, how he ended up roped into that. Yes, because I believe his father was already an informant, right? And so in the film, though, they depicted it as his father not knowing, but that was not true. His father, and this came out in the documentary, his father didn't negotiate on his behalf. And of course, the criticism is like, who makes money off their children that way? That's pretty bad. But his father rationalized it as they were targeting more dangerous drug dealers, which they deserve to go to jail, right? So... His case stands out, though, because unlike the dirty cops, hired hitmen and drug kingpins that his testimony in Narkin put away, at age 17, Rick Worsey Jr.'s drug dealing saw him receive a life sentence. So he was convicted under the 1978 650 Lifer Law. And it goes that anyone with over 650 grams of heroin or cocaine could be sentenced to life in prison without parole. And when he was 17, this was in 1988, he had eight kilos and Mm. such was eligible for the law. So later it was found to be unconstitutional for a minor to be sentenced under this life for law. So his sentence was modified to have the possibility of parole, which he was denied. Ultimately, he he served more than 30 years, being released in 2018. And this documentary, White Boy, was released in 2017. So he's still locked up in 2017. And the documentary asked why. Why was he denied parole and who has kept him in prison? Now, as a side note, I think there was, you know, of course, coverage of these films. I don't know how I missed all all this where I was, but some of the journalism, in my opinion, was lazy. So they said, well, isn't the story of the effects of mass incarceration on black people more compelling and the story that we should tell? Obviously, the answer is yes, that (laughs) is true. It doesn't, though, make this story less interesting. So it's worth repeating, I think, that race is a relationship, not a thing. So it's not just, oh, well, we should ignore this because he's white and black people are the oppressed group. All of that goes without saying. I still think, though, that when you just think about it in that way, you make race the object and the subject 
of what you're talking about. And I think the best way to understand race is to see the social position of the group as it relates to social, economic, and political power. So in this way, context is everything. You have to understand the institutional relationships that undergird race. This is what creates race. And it's only in understanding these institutional relationships and power can we really understand how race works. So I'd argue that the story of Rick Worshi Jr. is an interesting one because it's the story of how this can come into play when a white person, and in this case, that's Rick Worshi Jr., does not have this, right? He does not have the political and economic power of whiteness. And instead, he's embedded in Black social relationships. Mm. So this is in terms of his associates, his girlfriends, his children, neighborhood, everyone is Black. And he doesn't leverage his whiteness to access the white neighborhood, schools, jobs, and wealth. That is what creates whites as a dominant ethno-racial group in the U.S. So the story of this film and the documentary that he stitched on Detroit's Black political machine is really how he stayed in prison. And that is the story, I think, of White Boy Rick, of Detroit's Black political machine, how it came into power, and the context for how that exists, and then how then a white person can be, um, I guess, penalized through the war on drugs, where in other cases they are not normally. So we see this Black political machine from the prosecutors because they're part of this and they've worked to keep his parole denied and they also worked in and i don't want to say it was in concert with but at the same time the media was painting him as a 17 year old drug kingpin which he was not he was a low-level drug dealer that was protected through his friendships with one of the kingpins but he was never a big player in that so in addition to being that story I think it's also one of 1980s Detroit, particularly as it relates to criminalization and the war on drugs. So we have Detroit, which is, you know, losing its tax base. We know that they lost their former economic base of car manufacturing. So we see that cities need money to function. And so then how can, what then becomes the economic base of the city? And then how does the civil servants, the political machine then become a part of that and work in concert in that? And they gain the foothold in the sort of city. So we see that there's a lack of wealth, opportunity, upward mobility. And then what does that create for people who need jobs, who need to work, who need money? And I think in that, it shows the difference between black political power and white political power. So in this case, in Detroit, based on the film, we see that it's really limited to a small group of individuals that function like a cartel. So it's not a class of people. It's not diffused to sort of reverse the racial relationship so that you have the black people on top and they're able to throw poor white people under the bus. Absolutely not. It's just like a small group of people that Rick Worshi snitched on that have then been able to use their limited power, which is only in this sort of political arena. So it's the people in the police force, it's the people in the courts, the prosecutor's office. But then their power, even though it is political, is also rooted, as the documentary illustrates, through drug money. And then it begs the question, well, well, not begs the question, but I think it points out that it could have been no other way because as a black political group, they didn't have access to wealth through other means. So not through the financial market. We know that housing in Detroit can't 
accumulate um, equity because black people live in them, right? So where else would they have gotten their money except for ties to the criminal underworld? So I was surprised that wasn't pointed out. It was very interesting. So I encourage encourage anyone who's interested to watch that. So those so are my picks. Just yeah. a question. Why who whose interest in whose interest was it to keep him in jail? The people who he snitched on. Probably I didn't tell that well. So what happened Okay, so was, and they had enough so they had this limited power but that was it which was just enough to impact on the the prison system in the local prison system and keep him there. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Because the even though so he was an FBI informant, but the FBI did not so they say, right? It's always, you know, what what are they willing to do for you? So the reason part of the reason why he was working with the FBI at one point, um, you know, after he got caught with his eight kilos was they would try to keep him from getting that life sentence if he helps them. Mm-hmm. But they don't the federal courts or the FBI doesn't directly influence the local courts, right? Because they're two different systems. You have the state system and then you have the federal system. So of course his dad, and I would argue that too, I find it hard to believe that they couldn't influence, but it just sounds like they didn't want to. And it seems like it was also an embarrassment because then they would have to come out and say that they're using using teenagers and giving them drugs to deal to have legitimacy so that they can be snitches. I mean, yeah. it's just, that that's pretty bad. They didn't stick the next outfit. Exactly. And it seems like, why would it. they? Like, why would you do all that for one teenager? And, of course, in the film, and who knows if this is true, but in the film it was depicted as the FBI agents who got them in that they're just like, look, he's only going to serve like 10 years. Calm down. You know, they gave him a life sentence, but nobody serves a life sentence. And he is the longest serving prisoner. So that was also true that even... The people who, I mean, one person they interviewed in the documentary, he admits to being a hitman and Mm -hmm. killing 30 people. Even he's, (laughs) he didn't serve this long. (laughs) So when you think about it that way, it's pretty crazy because they're all like, hmm, yeah, he's still in there. And everyone got out. Even the drug kingpin, I think, did 10 or 12. Maybe he did 15. But you know, it's like nobody was serving that kind of time. And he wasn't a kingpin. He was just serving, serving, selling a bit. He's a teenager, right? Yeah, so you yeah, know how teenagers enough. are. They just want to deal drugs to have a car and jewelry and clothes and just want to flex. And, you know, he wasn't out there buying houses and, no, you know, or buying politicians for that matter. Yeah, what a waste. No, no, it is. But he was released in 2018. Um, so I couldn't find any information on what he's doing now. I'm sure he's Probably changed his identity. Low, but... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> laying low but you know let's you know god bless him i hope he's able to reunite with his children that's always i think um the bad thing of course i'm always what? focused on black men how black men being locked up disrupts family life um hang on how does he have children when did he have the children <laughs> oh because you mean 17 he has yeah. three it makes me wonder what i'm doing with my life that's what i'm saying but what's interesting about that too is my friends who've had kids younger now they're you know back out ready to mingle and have a life again because now their kids are adults so you know maybe the joke was on us for not having children as teenagers i don't know but yeah he had three but it seems like he's only has a relationship with one of them although in the documentary there was footage from when he first came up for parole and his son was saying um i've only seen my dad twice oh no it's awful it's awful i think when you 
when you have that, especially someone so young. And as much as I don't like to see black men locked up, I think when black children, all children mm-hmm. are locked up, you just think is that, you know, nothing you can, and, and when you question it, they bring the most horrific cases and talk about these murders. Like, okay, that's not the vast majority of yeah, teenagers exactly. who are locked up. They've done nonviolent drug crimes. And if it was violent drug crimes and no one got hurt, you know, if they had a weapon, but no one got hurt, it's like, do we want them to come out of prison when they're 40? Is that really what we yeah, want to do? Yeah, just their parents in the case and they have children. I, I mean, it's just so, you know, the worst thing ever. But anyway, so yeah, no, I enjoyed that. You should check it out. Great. Okay, so do you want to start with this, with this house, with his house or social dilemma? Oh, either. I can do either. Okay, well, let's go on my Google Doc. Let's start with his house. Okay. His House is a 2020 film on Netflix, and it tells the story of a refugee couple from South Sudan settling into English life as they await a decision on their asylum application. Spoiler alerts coming. Spoiler, spoiler. To escape the genocide, they kidnapped a child to make their way onto a bus that was ahead of soldiers carrying out the atrocities. Then, in their journey across the Mediterranean, the boat overturned and the husband, Bol, let the, let the child that they kidnapped drown while saving his wife. So they're now haunted by many things, but mostly their descent into brutality in an effort to save their own lives. In terms of a review, I'd rather say nothing. I'm not very well-versed in migration refugees or asylum seeking. And I watched this because I thought it was a horror film, mm-hmm. but I wasn't really convinced of anything here. I, I felt like it was promoted as a horror film, but tried to be social commentary and it didn't do that right. It, it's like Ooh, they ouch. tried to have a message and, and I, it's like, I don't know if you need to have one. You know what? And we'll discuss it when we do a top 10 of all time. <clears throat> and so it's a film I don't think you like. The Hateful Eight, the Quentin Tarantino uh, film. Yeah. yeah. And I thought it was that. Like, it, the story was about the gang, but there was the social commentary about blackness and post-Civil War. And the Hateful Eight? Oh, I didn't get that at all. What? Okay. Did, okay. Yes, that, I mean, yeah, because we look at the stories of of um, the women who set up the the, sh- the the pit stop there, both black, and then you have Samuel L. Jackson who carries around that fake letter for protection. He has to have his papers, even though slavery is over. A lot. There I didn't to even. Unpack. I didn't even clock that. I didn't even oh, clock okay. that. I think well, they lost me when they kept spitting at the only female character in the film. She was a murderer. Look, okay, yeah, but fine. still, like, we'll, we'll discuss. Big... What do you mean, still? If it was a man, we wouldn't have a problem with her getting punched in the face and treated. She was a murderer, a gang murderer. Yeah, you, but I the mean... context is that there is a hell of a lot of misogyny in his films, and it <sighs> and it's it's gratuitous. A lot of it is just. Of course, it's gratuitous. It's it's. it's... It's CD um, nerd having fun with don't know. But of course he does. Cre- I mean, it, it's Quentin Tarantino. Of course, everything's over the top, very bloody, unnecessarily. But okay, we we will talk about this when we do a top <laughs> ten. Needless to say, I think I like when things are done that way. When if you've got the message to say, it can be an undertone. It doesn't have to be. Okay, I will say this. 
Mm-hmm. I did think one of the early scenes was excellent. So there was a scene where the couple first learns that they're leaving the detention center and they're in this room, like a, a room that could seat many people, but there's just them on one side with chairs, very distant from a panel. And in that space and the way it was framed, you just felt the stark contrast to a black pair that's in a space of precariousness and certainty and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you have a white panel that's indifferent, regimented, giving the facts. Do you understand explaining things? And they also, the way you leap into that scene, you are in the shoes of the couple because you're not sure what's going on. You're not really sure what they're talking about, what the rules are. Yeah. That was well done. And it set us up for something that it didn't deliver, I got to say. So I think when I, the film was over, we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, okay. So I don't know. Okay, just, so as yeah. a horror film, didn't quite hit the right note. Yeah, yeah. And, and I thought it was supposed to be a horror film. It it was. Now, it, it wasn't scary. Also, it had, I guess, a liberal approach to what you would call horror. I think where it succeeds the most, I have, right, I'll agree that the the jump scares and the true horror of it in the most traditional sense of the word are 50-50. I thought some of it was genuinely... It was not really, 50. You're making that up because was, you don't want I, to say... I jumped out of my seat you twice. did not. I honestly did when they see the little girl uh, rushing past, you know, in the corridor. Um that really scared me there was some a, a couple of <laughs> but you have a big screen so it could be my little did, screen did you watch it on it, a laptop it was lost no no oh. i've got a screen now because i'm you know working from home so i got a proper i mean it's still very small it's only 27 inches so it's just a work screen you know okay on a big screen this it, for me it's subjective but it were there were two or three genuinely good solid scary moments and good quality jump scares it's sort of two take- or three in a feature film. I want you to give it a think. Are you sure then that is 50-50? If it's mm. a few, which is it? I'm going to push you here. Was it 50-50 or was it a few? There were a few, but they were effective enough to weigh as much as 50%. Because, they, <laughs> right, because the film was very much split in into sort of two kind of worlds there's the horror of their actual social realist situation and there's the traditional horror of the ghosts and in terms of the ghosts you don't actually have that many that many moments where you see ghosts so out of these moments I thought half of them were really effective however where I think it's very very strong is in the entire construction of the world they inhabit um, one and two, the rhythm of it and the the way, just the way the scenes flow into into one another. So the the most horrific aspect of it really was the sheer depressing shabbiness of the grimy housing estate that they end up in. With really, well, they got their own house. But yeah, it's it was, horrible. It was awful. Yeah, but it's okay. It's large. The walls are peeling. The electricity doesn't work. The neighbors are really ugly. There's a creepy cat. There's a, and it's all the you can see the bins and it's all really depressing. 
Well, remember that they said the uh, person who settled them in, normally you'd share this with other people. So yeah. you're not supposed to have this whole house. Exactly. You're supposed to get a room in a house as a couple. Exactly. The whole, everything about it is just so sad and and awful. Um, so there's a really good bit when the wife tries to go out for a walk and she ends up in this sort of maze of back roads and bins and back gardens and dilapidated alleyways the, the way it felt incredibly claustrophobic and grim I thought was really effective and that was there was something dark and horrible about it um, just the film was constructed so how we got from um, the moment where she runs away to the moment where there is a sort of flashback and you go back to when she left South Sudan and the con- and the uh, the context around that. Um, so in turn, and that's just it. I, I just yeah. want to say too, as a side note, uh, well, not a side note. I suppose really just interrupting. <laughs> I thought they tried to let her off the hook for that kidnapping and tried to blame it just on her husband, which I did not appreciate. So just because you're silent does not mean you're not co-signing. She's complicit, or even bet. No, she co-signed. Look, she's more than complicit because she could have used it. And that's the, you don't know, maybe it's because you don't, but you're a child. So I I don't even like to let women who aren't mothers off the hook. Like you knew her mom was going to come looking for her. Yeah. And I think on the one hand, it's like, well, she likely would have survived anyway because the troops were coming and yeah. you questioned did anyone in that town survive. Um, so she would have died anyway. But yeah, she was a part of it. And that's the thing, her, you know, trying to distance it. Um, I, I feel like there's kind of some distancing there because she didn't actually pick up the girl. But you you watched him do it. You were happy. And just be honest, like you were happy that he did it so he could be with you because you did not want to go alone. And then she also tries to soothe it over by, oh, then I promise to take care of her. Mm. Of course. Okay. Of course. It doesn't make it better. But it just comp- kidnapper. All it does is compound the horror of the entire situation. Your kidnapper. Of <laughs> <laughs> and they never got their comeuppance, I might add. So, but I, don't, but, but I just thought the way it was kind of framed was making it seem like the husband was the one who was like so kooky and the wife felt some remorse. It's like, no, I think they're both pretty kooky. And he just understands that the remorse is wasted energy because at this point, nothing can be done to, um, to yeah, to pay back what you owe, so to speak. You can't do anything. Exactly. It's a horrific reality. That's why it works as a horror film. there's no way you can (laughs) there's no get out there's nothing every part of their journey is tainted by horror they are the cause of it they are the victims of it they are complicit in it it's i think on a grander scheme this is what how horrific it is to have to flee with nothing and try and somehow make it to safety this is what happens Nice try, Abla, but <laughs> we just don't see eye to eye on this one, which is fine. We don't have to see. We don't have to agree, but no, I, I just don't. Uh, yeah, I, I think it could have been scarier, and I think the social commentary, it could have been done in another way to be more underlying. Because even the, for example, when she's when she gets lost that time, right, yeah. and then the children are so awful to her. Yeah. I just thought, well, is is that that sort of blatant act of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, the word Abla is um, 
xenophobia. Yeah. Is that how we really want to see that play out? I mean, I know, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of children, but I, I don't know if I even want to depict black youth no. in my film as harassing. I was going to, I was going to ask you what you thought of that scene, actually, because. That is what I think but... of that. I just thought, <laughs> why are you going to throw them under the bus? It, it wasn't necessary. No, but. And I yeah. think if you want to have, since he already put that message out, like clearly you got from the opening scene, like that's the message he wants to get of, um you know, the discrimination, like the horrors and the discrimination that you face, right, as mm-hmm. a refugee asylum seeker. Okay. I just so, didn't believe for that know. scene. No, because I think they would have done that if he was a teenager. They do that to appear. And that's just it. So it would have worked if it was a a young man their age. Right, it's yeah. like, okay, you know how boys are. But to a woman, and we all know, it's likely that that's their parent. Exactly, but that's it. So it's like, that's would it. they? That, <laughs> just, no, but that's, that's what possible, it felt like. It's like but, she's, yeah. she could be, it's too close to home for them. Exactly. Black teenagers, would they react like this towards a black woman? Pierre, I could see it, but not not a... And, and, I, and I just think it was necessary to throw them into the bus that way. Like, if you want to... to show xenophobia that's you know understandable because you're trying to depict their experience but let it come from somewhere else and i i thought the way that they were treated by the housing officials like that you know that rang true that sort Mm -hmm. of british (laughs) condescension i thought was pitch perfect but like leave it there like i don't know i guess he he was making a point that what sets them apart isn't only the fact that they're black is that they're african and that they are they are genuinely foreigner that they can't even fit in with Britain's black population. But but see, but that's the thing. But but they can because half of the half of Black Britain is immigrant, so that doesn't even make any sense. And and let's not forget that this is after the scene where the husband can go into a white pub and sing songs with them. That's true. So he can do that. But then the black people, the black boys, no less, are telling you to go back to Africa. Okay. And, and, and that's just, it's like, I, I just don't know why you would do that. Like, even even the, uh, the white people mm-hmm. treat them with, like, invisibility or indifference versus open antagonism that he's then going to leave to other black people who statistically, at least two of those boys have a parent like that yeah maybe not from that country of course you know i don't want to get crazy here but from the continent i'm gonna say yeah it didn't quite ring true but i can definitely see why he did it and let's not forget i he is a this is a first time filmmaker i'm not actually sure if he's made short films before i think he might have but he it's this debut feature and it's really impressive in that sense, it's really well put together. No, that's, that's true. Okay. I can I can co-sign on that. That's certainly true. There you go. That's a nice note to end it on. <laughs> Moving swiftly on to the social dilemma. Now, I saw that a while back, and I'm not even sure how to describe it, but it was a, a mix of, what is it, a docufiction? Oh, I think it's a documentary, but then they have a story where what the talking heads are discussing in terms of addiction and dangers to children is played out by a fictional family That's that it. has clips interspersed throughout the film. But really we're following 
more so people in the dot-com industry as they went from creator to critic, mm-hmm. right? Or creator to now trying to reform the system as we know it because it's selling people as products. What did you make of it? Well, of, of course, uh, I did not like the film. I don't think we needed the fictional oh. family. Um, I didn't I didn't quite get them. And no one likes the sort of self-righteous older sister who's telling everyone, you need to get off social media. It's like, you need to get a life. Why are you so involved in what we're doing? Nobody likes that person. So it was hard for me to want to relate to her. <laughs> Even though she was right, but it's not about being right, is it? It's about people liking you and about you not being a nag. I did like the talking heads, though. It raises important questions about how the internet is set up and that when we think about criticisms of the internet being not only so addictive, but putting people in these echo chambers, even though, I mean, I I don't really agree. I don't have evidence to back it up, though. So I, I don't agree, though, with this idea that it's polarizing Politically, mm-hmm. it's like, mm, I don't know. I don't feel like people are <laughs> getting all that polarized. I mean, doesn't that happen in some stage in your life when you realize you're surrounded by people who don't share your outlook and views and values? And so you separate from them. And perhaps it's just an expression of that. But I think that happens over the course of life when you. It does. Um, I think what what it, yeah. it implies is that the content on social, the political content on social media tends to be very heavily skewed towards things that are inflammatory or false because uh false information is more attention grabbing and therefore generates more um, user engagement. Um, but see, that's the that's thing. It's like, I think that's bait. a continuation because, you know, we came up during the talk show era. And I think that, if anything, is what taught people these false equivalencies. They would have so-called experts on shows that weren't really experts. And we really had this idea that my opinion is as valuable as an expert's opinion, which is as valuable as your opinion. And none of those things were equivalent. So I think we've been set up for more than a generation. Yeah, but they're talk shows. They're not politics. They're like like the Tyra Banks one about tapeworms. It's fine, but it's and it can be sensational and ridiculous, but it's not it's not as they don't tend to be political. But I think that is political, though, because what that's teaching you is that you the most important thing It's like the century of the self, even though we're going to talk about that later, like that, that is what that taps into. That is very political saying what's most important is that I understand my value and beauty as an individual woman, no matter my shape or color. And I don't have to worry about the fact that the schools aren't funded and the roads aren't paved and our society's hyper segregated. I've got to focus on myself and my internal feelings and emotions. And then, of course, we can then point at the person who's got body dysmorphia or the person who is super colorist and talk about how they're all out of whack meanwhile Mm -hmm. everything's burning down behind us so no i think that is very political and that is what her intention is to kind of set us up for that this sort of um, investment also in individual lives and watching individual lives and that really feeds into social media because you do the exact same thing and that's part of the reason i can't get into it i just i cannot be interested in the minutiae of anyone's life just like i don't think anyone's interested in anything I have going on in mind. It's like, how how could you care about anything like that? And it's one thing to share an opinion. And that's the thing, like we see how like only in, when we talk about talk shows, only certain talk shows are popular. And something that's been covered in other documentaries is how Donahue fell out of favor. And when you look at old episodes of Donahue, which are on YouTube, which I watch all the time, they're pretty good in terms of the people who he has on and the questions he asks and the issues that he brings up for debate, which are more overtly political issues. Okay, I'm going to have to stop you there. Who's Donahue? Yeah. 
Oh no, you don't know who Donnie is. Okay. So <laughs> no, I made a big assumption there. So Donahue was like the precursor to Oprah and the kind of the joke, which isn't really a joke because it's kind of true. It's like basically Oprah stole his job. So mm-hmm. instead of people wanting to talk about serious issues, they wanted to talk about childhood abuse from a personal perspective, not a social perspective mm-hmm. to say what is it about society that creates abuse and creates this sort of family structure and creates this particular forms of masculinity and femininity and parenthood it was to talk about you know do like a pain vomit on stage and get everyone crying right and to do their own self work and that's what people you know were watching and that's what i grew up on and you think, like you, think you think you see that as a precursor painting. to social to the, the, the type of exhibitionism that there is on social media and and to make the personal because there's, there's a quote and i actually really like audrey lord right and I, i'm pretty sure it's audrey lord who says that right like the personal is political yeah. and even when i read it i was like that can't be right i did not though have the tools to analyze it but it just felt like mm, i don't know about that and now that's where we are and that's why i think we're so invested in identity yeah and people trying to say, oh, why well, identity's political? It isn't in the way that you think. Mm-hmm. Like it is, but not in the way that you think. Um, and then that's when we can go down these different rabbit holes about my identity and how I feel and how I identify and blah, 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 blah. And I think that's that that is, you know, the problem that then we spend all of our time in that. And then what makes it so attractive to us and how it can be, because that's the documentary goes into, mm-hmm. right? It, it is so validating. Yeah. And that's then the scarier question, like, why is there validating coming from a technology or from people who you meet on social media? Yeah. Like how how did we get there when it's not it's not coming from, you know, your contribution to a community, however, you know, whatever community you're a part of. Well, it's not coming from the real world. Like social relationships. Even if it was virtual, if it was like virtual, but it's more based on your values and your contribution versus just uh, making people feel a certain kind of way about themselves mm-hmm. um, or even a form of an escapism. Right. Which I think it's it's a lot of um, a lot of that, like um, being so invested on how people see you, whether than knowing how you really are, or what you really are. Right putting being able to see the you you wish you were reflected back to you and other people liking that reflection of you seems to fit you in a very dangerous headspace we're certainly not creating critical thinkers there who should be parenting anybody in the future (laughs) we're we're creating something else altogether or even where you know even the focus of your energy and time because it's one thing like one of the talking heads in the documentary made this joke like there's only two types of people like the person who checks their social media before they go to the bathroom and the people who check their social media in the bathroom (laughs) 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 but that just shows not only the addiction but it's like that's what you have to have it's like things that you have to know which aren't like real things at all um and I mean, even for me, because we all know my phone was, well, not we all, but you and I both know my um, iPhone was stolen. <laughs> so I've had to go back to this archaic. But the only thing that I don't have now is WhatsApp. Yeah. But other than that, I don't really, I'm like, eh. But it, but that's a hassle, I must say, to not have WhatsApp. Yeah. yeah. But beyond that, it's like, I don't, I'm not really, I always forget about social media. Like The problem is, you see, that it's a vicious cycle because you end up needing it for certain things like for example my dilorama simple as that 
Not the same. It's not, not the same, same, but you end up having to kind of engage with it to a certain extent. And with my luck, no one else is on social media. Clotilde is barely on Facebook. Elise isn't on social media. You're not on social media. Judy's disappeared. So it falls on me to monitor social media. And, and That's just it. Like, I, I, I do appreciate that aspect of social media. So that was explained to me years ago. Like, 10 years ago, I was had this internship. And the media guy there of course he was really into social media and explaining to me the importance of twitter and i think that part is true so i know that people do use it not for political organizing where you're getting people to show up for things but to be on top of issues and i think that's not the same thing as using it in the way the social contract is talking about it Mm -mm. because this is where it's you your whole sense of self is wrapped up in what Facebook is telling you. Yeah. It's not That's not used then to, as a marketplace of ideas. I think that that purpose is important, but it's just like the talking head who was telling you that's why you need to delete your social media because that's not what's going on. But it could be going on if we pay for it, which people, I don't know, yeah. don't, can't. I mean, I don't know how, I mean, what do you think in terms of people? Because I prefer to pay for it, certainly. I wouldn't mind paying, you know, my $50 a year or whatever. To, I would, but again, like it. everything. Oh, you would? No, it, 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 like okay. everything else. There's a it, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's a context. To this increasingly, everyone's on social media, and you start to need social media. And if you're not on it, you're ostracized. And for example, to just simply mm-hmm. to find work, you will need social media to do things to engage. At that level of society, you start needing social media. So if you're priced out of it, so just to have that lifeline has been really useful for a lot of people. Now, I agree that. We shouldn't even get to the point where this is necessary. We're still at the point where it's a bit of a vicious cycle. And I feel like if you're purposely excluded, then you do miss out on, on quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I think I do. That's really been the only thing that I've, well, besides, like I said, connecting to a few old friends. Or you think it's a substitute, right? Like, I think that's what the documentary yeah. is saying, that it's serving as a substitute if people are getting their news from there. But then, of course, it also doesn't deal with the crisis of media. Like, there was a, a an episode, I can't remember which one, on John Oliver, and they were talking about, I believe, the privacy, the legislation around privacy and surveillance. And then they cut from that because Justin Bieber was being sentenced. <laughs> cut because that was breaking news <laughs> justin bieber big sentence but that's not a new thing they used to do that like when because we would have local news and celebrity news would be on there someone got married yeah. someone got divorced and when we were younger you didn't think anything of it like that is news but it really wasn't and so again it's like kind of we, we were prepped for that in the 80s and the 90s and now it seemed as normal when it is so far from normal mm-hmm. But I think it's I think it's the context for it, it right? Is. Because it, it also begs the question like people wouldn't people would compartmentalize if there was a way to, but when you don't have other news sources or or even, you know, taking a step back even, how are you even prepped to be able to engage in critical Exactly. Well it all comes down to this all the time. Other institutions as well, yeah, who prep you for that, yeah. yeah to be able to understand. So 
Um, well, I think you can close out. I don't really have anything to say. Um, yeah, I think I think we said it all. I don't think I have quick another. recap about what we no. talked. Ah, uh, yes, my picks were White Boy Rick of twenty eighteen, White Boy twenty seventeen, the documentary that dis- discusses White Boy Rick, and the twenty seventeen documentary, The China Hustle. China Hustle. Enjoyed them all. Would recommend them all, especially if you are the China Hustle. If you're interested in short selling, which I, you know. I really wish now I would have majored in economics so that I could be a short seller. It sounds so interesting. No, honestly. I mean, I guess I wouldn't have had the relationship. Well, you never know because when you, when, you know, sometimes I think in the nineties or I guess I wasn't out of school in the nineties. So I was out of school in the two thousands. I think they were still um, recruiting black people to wall street. So maybe I could have been able to be a short seller. And that just sounds so interesting. Every time I hear about it, I get so jealous. Like I know how research too. It just seems like the other aspect is you have to have ends in those, um, you know, some sort of end to be able to tip you off. Kind of like yeah. a journalist, like you have to have your sources to be able to make that work. But it sounds so interesting. But then of course, then you then also need the money. Well, exactly. So to, it's not uh, exactly accessible to everyone to buy and sell the stock. No, it's not, but it does sound so interesting. Doesn't it? Yeah. And it seems like in, uh, the documentary Betting on Zero, the woman who was a short seller was recruited in that because someone told her she had a mind for it. And you get that thing, you have to be like slightly crazy, but very inquisitive. And of course, she had yeah. a scientific background. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> that could have been you. <laughs> <laughs> what did I talk about? Yes, I quickly went over not quite the vow, but seduced, which is a sort of parallel documentary slash sequel to The Vow and Egyptian horror series Paranormal, which is on Netflix. And that's it for us for this week. You can tweet us comments and feedback at my dialorama and you can also subscribe to our new cool newsletter if you scroll down on the homepage at um, www.mydialorama.org.uk you'll see a subscribe to our newsletter uh, button. Until next time, take care.